Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Someone recently asked me, how do you select your guests for this show? And my answer was simple. Everyone who's come on so far has shared ideas that directly challenge traditional leadership thinking, and their enlightened wisdom and insight has provided immediate and uncommon guidance on how to successfully maneuver in one's life and career. So my intention is to find guests who meet or exceed these extremely high standards every time and never settle. Today's guest, Margaret Heffernan, may actually raise the bar on these requirements. She's a true leadership thought leader and her new book called Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future is a brilliant piece of work that recently was named a Financial Times Best Book of the Year. You may already be familiar with Margaret. Her TED Talks have been viewed over 12 million times And her previous books, Beyond Measure, Willful Blindness, and The Bigger Prize have all been highly acclaimed. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that life is far more unpredictable than we may expect or prefer. The irony, however, is that most of us remain addicted to prediction and are desperate for certainty about the future. But as we're about to discuss, Margaret's research shows that all of us operate under a false belief that we can really predict the future whenever we have complete data and a good model for how a complex system works. But by trying to simplify the complexity that exists in life, we miss seeing all of the forces at work that more often influence outcomes. And despite what high paid experts want us to believe, their predictions are more often wrong than right, history does not repeat itself, and tomorrow very much remains uncharted territory. So, how do we forge ahead with agility in an unreliable world? Over the next hour, Margaret will share many fresh and inspiring approaches. And when we're done, you'll have a very good sense of what new skills and mindset you'll need in order to thrive in the future ahead. And with that, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to you, Margaret Heffernan. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be talking to you. Well, it's great to have you. We're talking across the pond, as they say, and I just absolutely loved your book and found it very inspiring, as I was telling you offline, and I want to get right into it. So you make your premise very clear. As human beings, we're desperate for certainty about our future. And by leveraging technological algorithms and other arcane predictive tools, we've grown highly convinced that the future has become minutely and perfectly predictable. That's your language. The problem is the future isn't perfectly knowable, never has been, and the complexity of modern life won't allow it. So to get us going, tell us why this is such an essential piece of wisdom for all leaders to understand and fully accept. Well, I think it's essential because Clearly, from a leadership or management perspective, we've grown up with what I think of as the three-legged stool, which is forecast, plan, execute. And that's how we've always taught business in business schools. It's pretty much how we still do. And the problem with it is the first stage doesn't really work anymore, which is to say our ability to forecast is extremely limited. And even when we have quite good foresight and outstanding forecasters, we are still subject to the completely unexpected, as the pandemic has taught us. And I think part of the genesis of this book was the sort of nerdy data points, the kind that I like to collect, which was the observation that if you are extremely fastidious about your forecasts, you review them every day and adjust them in the light of new information. You consult an extremely broad range of information sources and are yourself very open-minded. Probably the furthest out you can do any kind of accurate forecast is about 400 days. And if you're less fastidious than that, which I would argue almost everybody is, then the horizon is shorter. It's closer to 150 days. Mm. And this really stuck in my head. And I thought, well, then every way that we do business planning is just not going to work, right? And that stuck in my head and I started unraveling the implications of it. And that really led me back to where the book starts, which is looking at the beginning of the age of forecasting, which was in, you know, about the 1880s and where the kind of fault lines of forecasting can be seen that remain there to this day. 
So I think it matters because I think the way that we do planning and business is significantly challenged by this. And I think there's another kind of key piece of my argument, which is almost every business, in fact, I would venture to bet every business, focuses deeply on efficiency. And efficiency, you know, is a fantastic quality to aspire to in conditions where you know exactly what's going to happen. You know, and efficiency has made us able to do a lot of things faster, cheaper, at a bigger scale than ever. But where you don't have that certainty, what efficiency does is it erodes all your margins to respond to the unexpected. And to the degree that we understand the unexpected is always with us, and indeed there may be more unexpected in the environment these days than in the past, efficiency doesn't become, if you like, a security blanket. It becomes something really dangerous. And again, I would suggest that the pandemic has given us some very harsh lessons. You just said something again that I wanted to really focus on before we get into the rest of the discussion. And you made it a second time, which is that the pandemic has taught us about the unreliability of forecasting. And when you said it the first time, I was I was like, well, did it? In other words, before reading your book, you know, did people have this epiphany? Did we, you know, collectively go, you know, this is an uncertain world? (laughs) Or did we see this as sort of a one-off that, you know, is inexplicable, but we go back to our SWAT plans and et cetera? Well, I think that's a really great question and observation. And I think the jury's out. So I work with a whole range of companies, both in Europe and in the U.S., And I would say that some companies have taken the experience of the pandemic to heart and they said, okay, right, oh, wow, the whole world has changed. We need to change. We need to change the way we think about planning and preparedness. We need to think about perhaps an excessive zeal with regard to efficiency. And we need really to rethink everything. And then there's a second group of companies that I would say is overwhelmingly nostalgic a little sad and downhearted, but is just waiting for the day when everything can go back to what they describe as normal. And my observation is that the first group of companies is pretty optimistic and kind of forward-looking and pretty creative. And the second group of companies is just kind of waiting for the past to return. (laughs) Enough, the past has a habit of not returning. Well, we're going to get to that point in a minute, but you really did nail it. But obviously, you've been thinking about that aspect of this, which is interesting. Just like any life lesson, sometimes we have to be hit by a two by four over and over and over until suddenly we just sort of go, oh, there was a message here and I didn't get it the first or second time. And I think, unfortunately, the universe's strategy is to punish us more heavily sequentially until we ultimately do get it, right? Yeah, and in some ways, you know, that's absolutely what willful blindness is about, which is, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, some of these lessons we could have been learning for some time, but we chose to kind of keep going our merry way in the assumption that everything bad that happened was a freak event, right? And therefore, completely failed to learn from them. But I think, you know, what does this mean in terms of our learning going forward? It means I think the companies who have, if you like, adopted a slightly more radical response to the pandemic pandemic and really taken it as a signal to accelerate change will probably come out of this crisis stronger. I totally agree with you on that point, by the way. Not only that, I think that wise leaders and organizations would be smart to seize this moment. And there was an anticipation of introducing change to their organization, whether it be culture or just the direction of the company, how they're going to manage their people, whatever. This would be the time to introduce it because we've overwhelmed people with change and people have shown that for the most part, people have been resilient and adaptive to it. So it seems to me that if you really wanted to turn your organization in a different direction, this would be the time to seize it. Do you agree? I completely agree. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, for years people have banged on about, you know, change management and how difficult it is and how people don't really like change. And I think, you know, one of the many lessons of the pandemic has been actually people are very good at change. Mm -hmm. You know why? You know, when there's a reason that they trust, 
And half the time change programs don't work is A, people don't know what they're for and they don't trust what they're for because mm-hmm. they're often disguised as something they're not. I mean, I can remember reading many, many proposals for digital transformation programs which purported to be digital transformation programs and quite frankly were nothing more than cost-cutting programs in disguise. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm not the only person who can see through that. Right. And I think one of the many reasons change programs have failed is because people didn't believe that they were what they said on the tin. They thought, actually, this is cost cutting. It's not in our favor. Why on earth would we play ball? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, But I do think, you know, we have seen companies turn on a dime. We have seen the workforce, you know, really rise to the challenge as managers have been forced to leave a lot of decision making to the front line and to you know local decision making rather than centralized decision making and lo and behold that's turned out on the whole really really well mm-hmm. all those all those workers that people were afraid were slackers it turned out guess what they're very good they're very smart they will do the right thing you can trust them you don't have to surveil them what you need to do is give them the tools they need and the confidence they need to do the good job that they came into work to do well said that's fantastic and i 100 percent agree so let's talk about uncertainty about the future it leaves us human beings feeling anxious and uncomfortable and fearful, right? You know, even if, like, you have a sense that there's something bad that's going to happen tomorrow, like, it, you know, it could ruin somebody's night, it can ruin their sleep. And so it's kind of likely that the past year of living through the COVID pandemic has not only made these feelings worse for people, and I suspect resulting in a, and we're seeing this, plenty of evidence, I don't suspect anymore, it's been confirmed that there's all kinds of anxiety and stress and mental health issues that have come from this. So big picture, what's the mindset of someone who thrives when life is most ambiguous? I would say two things. First of all, of course, everybody gets uncertain. You know, that's bound to be the case. But I think the people who do best in the context of uncertainty have a couple of assets, if you like. First of all, they have very well-stocked minds, which is to say that what's in their head isn't just exactly what this current job particularly required. You know, these are very discursive thinkers. They're very discursive readers. They travel a lot. They're curious. They pick up all kinds of random information. They recognize that you never fully know what you're going to need intellectually. So if you like the better stopped your brain is, the more resources you have to call upon when hit by a surprise. In the same way, these are not tactical networkers. They're not people who only target to cultivate the people that they think immediately will help their self-interest. These are people who are generous, who are helpful, who throughout their careers collect all kinds of broad relationships in all kinds of different sectors and places, who therefore have a great deal of knowledge and a great number of relationships to call upon with which to respond to something that was unpredictable. So they aren't rigorously tactical and super efficient in their acquisition of knowledge or relationships. They're very discursive, very led by curiosity. And I think they're also very open and open-minded to what experience throws at them. This, of course, also makes them quite creative thinkers. I think the other thing is I think they ask themselves different questions. And I've noticed this, again, in the pandemic, which is certainly in the UK when everybody went into lockdown, you know, a lot of people kind of instantly hunkered down and withdrew. The people who were very good in this environment, the first question they asked was, okay, what could I do that's really helpful? Hmm. Right, when I, all the people I know, all the organizations I work with, whatever, who's in trouble and how can I help? And those people, so that's also about a generosity of spirit, Hmm. those people did very well because they instantly found ways to be useful and human beings feel good when they're being useful. And also being in a place where you're useful ensures that you're receiving a lot of very current information. And so you're exactly in the spot where 
uncertainty is most likely to be reduced. That doesn't mean it's eliminated, but you're in a place where you're in the information flow. So you're, you have an antidote to your uncertainty. And those are the people who I think do best in these circumstances. Bravo. That is really, really insightful. And, you know, some of the things that you just said, Margaret, I mean, you implied that people who have handled this well have been very resourceful and agile and Mm. generosity of spirit, by the way, is not an answer that I expected. So that's wonderful. And curiosity. I had Kim Powell on one of my earliest guests, and she wrote the book about her research on CEOs and found the common denominator is, is a a preponderance of interest in all aspects right. of life, curiosity. But you use the word discursive, which I think is brilliant because that's like all subjects. You know, I'm interested in everything, not just whatever is in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so you just very, very brilliantly gave a great description of the kinds of people who've succeeded this way. So very well done. You say that every generation of human being, by the way, is lived with uncertainty and unpredictability. Sometimes we think we're just all alone in this. Yes. And you also think that that's how we've developed our capacity for invention and improvisation, creativity. And so what's the leadership take away from this. You know, basically you're saying that in moments of necessity, that's when we have our greatest innovations, right? We think about things differently. So tell us what we should learn from this. Well, I think for CEOs, there are sort of two takeaways. And the first one is for them themselves to keep feeding their own curiosity. And there's a great and I think understandable tendency not to because, you know, the higher up the ladder you get, the more demanding the job is, and actually the narrower your vision becomes. Mm-hmm. And so I think it takes quite a lot of discipline to reserve time and attention for a broader perspective. And, you know, some people do this by stocking up reading for their summer vacations. You know, Bill Gates very famously has his reading week. I would suggest that however wonderful a reader he is, a week a year is not nearly enough. But, you know, so different people find different ways of doing this. Personally, I make a point in the summertime of only reading fiction because I think it's a different mode of thinking, which is Mm -hmm. useful. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about understanding that however powerful you are, you will never know enough and you just have to keep learning. And actually, it becomes more urgent the more powerful you become. Let's use you as a model for that. How do you find time? to read. I mean, I, I mean that seriously, because yeah. I, you know, for all of my guests, my habit is that I lay on the bed Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday, and I read my guest books, yeah. and I'm writing in them, and I'm immersing myself in them before I create the questions. And mm-hmm. sometimes I go, oh, I did not have a weekend, because, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm learning profoundly. Yeah. You know, I have no regrets. But I also think, how do people find the time? How do people make the time to do this? Yeah. And so I'm curious how you do it. Yeah, because it's definitely not simple. I mean, the way I do it, I'm very much a morning person. And when I wake up in the morning, I don't get out of bed. I read for an hour. And I do it because I know that if I get up, I'll start working. And if I start working, I won't have time to read. And by the time I have time to read, I'll be too tired to read. So I want to know that I've got the reading done before I start my day. And I'm quite a fast reader, I have to admit. Mm. I will abandon books that I think are actually not what I thought they were cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Like you, the books that really grab my attention, I will make notes in because I know I'm going to want to go back to them. And I regularly buy books that I read about or hear about. And I have a huge pile in my office of things to read. I'm looking at it now. There are probably about 40 books in there. Wow. And at any given point, I'll think, okay, what I want, which one am I in the mood for? And the other thing, you know, as I said earlier, is I will reserve fiction for the summer because I think it is really important to read fiction. There's lots of evidence if one cares about such things that mm-hmm. it really changes kind of have a theory of mind and perspective and empathy and imagination. Teaches empathy. And frankly, there was a time in my life when I had stopped doing that. And I remember at one point, 
sitting at my desk thinking, why have I become so boring? What's happened to me? <laughs> and there's a kind of character in British children's books called Flat Henry, who's a two-dimensional person and deeply dull. And I thought, that's who I'm becoming. <laughs> I'm kind of horrified by myself and thought, I, all I've been reading are business books. This has got to stop. This mm. is terrible. This is not where ideas come from. And so I stopped doing it. I love that. I'll punctuate that. That's not where ideas come from. Sometimes I read business books and I'm like, I've seen all of this a million times and it's just restated, but there's no new insight here. So, But it's quite funny because, you know, I was very gratified just before, you know, New Year's when everybody was doing their big list of best books of the year, you know, in the business category, almost everywhere, Uncharted was listed, which was, you know, great. I'm seriously not ungrateful, right? But I kept wanting to say, who on earth thinks this is a business book? I mean, it's about business. Of course it is. It's about life. It's about careers. It's about work. It's about cathedrals. It's about artists. It's about history. It's about genetics. It's about death. It's about technology. My big three books, you know, what I think of as my trilogy, I don't think they're business books. They're deliberately not written as sort of how-to, you know, three steps to eternal wealth and fame, because all of those business books presuppose that business is a separate planet. And they're about how do you live on that planet? And they may talk about work-life balance, but they don't manifest it. And I've never thought that that's a helpful or relevant way of thinking about how we operate at work because we walk into work as human beings and we walk home thinking about work at home as human beings. And I think separating thinking about how we work from how we live is both a false and a deeply damaging dichotomy. And one reason I have a big base of readers who are not business people is because as far as they're concerned, my books are about how the world works and how we might live better. You know, I think that because you jumped in and said what I was going to say, which is that I wouldn't classify this as a business book. Thank you. Thank you. But you also should be grateful to what I think the British business press, Financial Times, The Economist, they seem to get it. They get that the kinds of work that you're doing has profound influence over business decisions, right? I mean, everything we've spoken about so far is directly relevant to how people think about strategic planning and how far out they can go. And so that helps them from a practical standpoint. But I think what I've understood from your other work, in this book especially, is that you're really saying, here's how to maneuver through life. Yeah. And so even for this audience, I mean, we have a very large leadership-oriented audience because that's how we've cultivated it. But I think we've intentionally brought on guests like you who are seeing the world from a totally different point of view and saying, stop thinking like this because it's not working and we need to, you know, you need another purview here and here's why. And I think that's making this audience grateful. And so back to you here, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of your book here. You make the distinction. You say that we used to live in a complicated world and now we're living in a complex one. Mm -hmm. And there's nuance there. So explain the distinction. Yeah. So a complicated world is one which is very much governed by cause and effect. It's very linear. A lot of thing patterns repeat themselves. And these are environments which are very, very well managed by efficiency. So one way I think about this is, you know, in the days when we used to fly around a lot, you would be airport and perhaps check your bag. And the whole process of checking your bag and boarding the plane, that's a complicated process. There may be multiple companies involved in doing it. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved in doing it. But it's pretty much the same every single day for every single passenger and every single suitcase. That's complicated complex is what happens when you get up in the air. So when you're in a complex environment, which is both a very, very sophisticated aircraft inside a super complex atmospheric system, now you're in a place where cause and effect may not be obviously connected. 
where things are not completely predictable, where you know you can't be entirely certain of what's going to happen, and where expertise is necessary but insufficient in the sense that things may change very, very quickly. And so one reason aircraft is designed with more engines than it needs and more operating systems than it needs is they're designed to be robust, which is to say when the unpredictable happens, like a geese strike or some sudden fall in pressure or atmospheric pressure or whatever, they are over-engineered in order that they can withstand this unpredictable surprise. And there's a great deal in, in life and in business which is complex so the Bank of England, for example, will say they know that there will be further banking crises, but they know that they can't predict when or where or what will set it off. That's why they hold a lot more capital than they used to before the banking crisis, which previously banking was run for maximum efficient use of capital. We know that climate change is real. This is a deeply complex system. So we can understand a lot about it, but we can't predict exactly which forests are going to catch fire, which agricultural crops are going to be flooded next year. We simply don't know. And so in those complex environments, we have to over-engineer and aim for robustness rather than efficiency. Because otherwise, when something happens, and you know, I write a lot about epidemics as an emblem of uncertainty, if you don't have that surplus in your systems, you are in a very, very dangerous place indeed. That's excellent. Thank you. I want to get into something else that flows from this, which is you tell a lot of amusing stories. Amusing in the sense that <laughs> we are all accepting of this and not questioning it. And there's a guy in the United States called Kramer who's always pontificating on which stocks to buy and people <laughs> hang in his every word. And you pointed out, I did laugh out loud, that he is, all the investments that he's recommended to people have lost people money, not made them money. So as a setup... There's a lot of people that gotten rich, like this guy, by being a self-proclaimed fortune teller. And so, you know, they say, well, I've got a special system or I can read the tea leaves or whatever. But the, you just make this point over and over in your book that the future is not knowable. So tell us about some of these people and why do we listen to them? Right. Well, I mean, Kramer is a very amusing example because, you know, much more nerdy quants than I have crunched the numbers about just how fast you'd lose your investment if you followed all of his advice. <laughs> and, you know, Philip Tetlock did this very witty but brilliant study that showed that actually the more famous the forecasts are, the more likely they were to be wrong for the simple reason that they become both very captivated by their big ideas but also very trapped by their brand. So they can't professionally, they kind of can't afford to change their positions or outlooks. And so the difficulty about forecasting as an industry generally is that the forecasters get very wedded to particular processes, particular assumptions, and so on. And they're very reluctant or unable to shift perspective when the times themselves change. And Kramer is an interesting example. I was really fascinated because, you know, this was something I didn't know about. You know, the founding fathers of forecasting who came together at this extraordinary moment in history when statistics was just emerging as a real... You say founding fathers. Are you talking about founding fathers of America? You no, know, the founding fathers of forecasting. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Yeah. So there's a moment in 1880 when the forecasting emerges as a business. And some of the founding fathers of this industry were alive at a moment where statistics was just emerging as a real tool, where you had the telegraph, which meant that you could collect data from all over the place. And you also had the railroad system, which meant that you could publish and distribute all over the country analyses of what was going on in markets. So these three things kind of coalesce to create a market for economic forecasting. And these guys leap into it. And each one of them has a theory. And each one of them is very dedicated to this theory. 
And they build huge businesses around their promise of being able to forecast markets. And they all really fail. I mean, quite spectacularly, they fail when the Great Depression comes along. The only one who survives, kind of, is Babson. And Babson only kind of accurately predicts the crash because he'd been predicting it for three years. <laughs> However, he was still wrong in the sense that he you know, routinely said the market had bottomed out when, in fact, it hadn't. But I think what these three founding fathers of forecasting demonstrated was the limits of models, which is you never have all the data. The data you choose is highly selective and there's a self-interest in perpetrating certain theories or ideologies, which may be true for a while, but ultimately will catch you out. And there's also a market-driven bias, if you like, for drama, because the more drama there is around your forecasts, the more your business grows. And I think these problems with forecasting and modeling became very clear in the market crash the Wall Street crash, and they've never changed. They're exactly the same problems that haunt forecasting today, despite big data and data analytics and all this kind of stuff, which is they're backward-looking, they're theory-bound, and the data is always selective no matter how gigantic it is these days. So do you dismiss expert opinion? What's the takeaway piece of advice here? So I don't, you know, I think, of course, models are useful. But it's important to remember, they are models, not reality. And, you know, Paul Krugman once said in this beautiful throwaway line, you know, I sometimes think the data that got left out of my models might have been more important than the stuff that got in. Mm -hmm. it's, a, you know, it's a very honest comment, which is self-effacing. Yeah. You know, models are good as long as you don't think they are reality. And so, yes, it's useful to look at what people are forecasting. It's also useful to start asking good questions about them, which is, who are they? What is their overarching theory about the world and about the economy? Where does their interest lie? In other words, you know, Kramer wants drama because he wants audiences. Academics want drama because they want citations. So understand these are all individuals and companies that have interests. Understand what their interests are so that you can see their forecasts with a little bit more objectivity. And also look at what do the other models say? You know, so there was this very famous and I think, you know, somewhat scandalous model saying, I think it was 47% of jobs would disappear by 2035 due to automation. Super gritty numbers of a kind that are totally implausible. And these numbers went around the world because the grittiness of the numbers made them so convincing, even though anybody with any understanding of statistics would realize you cannot possibly predict that far out with that level of granularity. Yeah, it wasn't 45 to 50 either. It was 47%. Like, put me down for that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's absurd. And of course, by 2035, nobody will remember and go back to these people and say, oi, you know, really? But had you actually been more thoughtful and less gullible, you would have found that many economic forecasters were forecasting everything from job growth to greater job losses, which would have revealed to you very quickly after a couple of Google searches that this is a wide spectrum of opinion and it's also far too far away in time for anybody to know. So take it as a provocation, take it as a question to think about, but do not take it as gospel. I mean, you even make the point about self-driving cars, you know, that we've all been persuaded that self-driving cars are going to be, you know, everybody's going to be using them and no one's going to be driving again. And it's all going to happen in the very near future. And you're saying no way, no how. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying they'll never, never happen. But there are, you know, so many reasons why this technology is going to be very, very, very much harder 
then the propaganda perpetrated by their designers and manufacturers would lead you to believe. I mean, very simple thing, you know, that they don't work in snow or fog. So that's a bit of a problem in countries with snow. <laughs> you think? There's a difficulty that because they're designed to stop when people walk in front of the cars, they're just a gift to carjackers. There's also the issue with pedestrians overspilling sidewalks. Does that mean we have to start caging in pedestrians? So what are the civil liberties implications of driverless cars? These aren't tech problems. These are the consequences of the whole concept, even if the tech works, which so far it doesn't. So I think, you know, it's really essential for people when they read these big dramatic prophecies or forecasts. I think it was Sergey Brin who said, you know, driverless car is going to be with us in 2017, 2017, to be skeptical because mostly what this is, and Silicon Valley is notorious for it, is it's just salesmanship. Mm. It's a land grab. It's trying to frighten off competitors while simultaneously build up valuations. And it has nothing to do with reality. That's a really powerful insight. And, you know, you know, you hear, well, it's Sergey Brin and he's the founder of Google, so he must be telling the truth. But obviously, we have almost four years out and they're not on the road right now. So he was wrong. And I think you've just really nailed this. You also say that, you know, we have this expression that history repeats itself. And Shakespeare said, past his prologue, you're saying, no, not so fast. Why do we believe that history repeats itself? You know, I think that those are comforting words. Well, we've seen this before, and this is the way it plays itself out. And you're saying you can't ever allow those words to enter your mind firmly. How come? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, I'm all for Shakespeare. When he says the past is prologue, I don't interpret that to mean that the past repeats itself, but more that it sets an agenda, which I think is true because the present grows out of the past. But the past doesn't repeat itself for the simple reason that people in the present know the past. They have access to information which people in the past did not have, and therefore they have different choices. You know, the Austrian philosopher Karl Popper argued that history, if you like, is made by new knowledge, which by definition, people in the past didn't have, and also which by definition is unpredictable because you can't predict new knowledge because you don't have it yet. And so I think the danger of this, you know, apart from this being philosophically interesting for historians, right? Mm-hmm. The practical importance of this is that believing history repeats itself encourages us to fall for analogies and to mistake one thing for another and concentrate on the similarities rather than the differences. So, for example, you know, probably one of the most pervasive metaphors is Munich which is always being used when there's a kind of over-aggressive tyrant that needs to be stood up to. So it was used, for example, by Eisenhower and then by Johnson in the context of the Vietnam War. Now, actually, there is nothing in Vietnamese history, culture, or politics that made the analogy with Munich work. None of it. I mean, there's just there's no fit here. It aesthetically, it might look similar, but actually there is no similarity between these two things. And yet, you know, Robert McNamara is brilliant about this. You know, he said the consequence of thinking that it was like Munich was several fold. First of all, it meant that, of course, we had to intervene. Of course, we would be successful. And of course, we would save the world for democracy. So the analogy was powerful enough to dismantle critical thinking and to enable very, very dangerous, bad decision making. Mm -hmm. So the problem is it gives people a level of comfort and security in their decision making, which is wholly misleading. And one of the things, you know, Matt Nuora says is the consequence of thinking we knew 
that this history would repeat itself, of course we'd be successful. Is we didn't bother to understand the politics. We didn't bother to understand the ferocious hatred the Vietnamese have always had for China. The notion of them budding up with China was even worse than the idea for them of budding up with the United States. And it meant that there was no understanding of how the Vietnamese people saw the world or how they would behave. Similarly, I would say, you know, the Prague Spring. The West instantly interpreted this as this is pro-democracy because everybody interprets history in terms of their own. President Obama likened it to the Boston Tea Party. It was nothing like the Boston <laughs> Party. You know? And furthermore, the Algerian Arab Spring was very different from the Egyptian, which was very different from the Libyan, which was utterly different from the Syrian. So this belief that these aesthetic patterns impose inevitability on outcomes dismantles critical thinking and leads, as I think it did in our Middle East policy, to absolutely catastrophic decision-making. So when we hear these analogies, you're saying, ask, is it? Yeah. yeah. And it's really funny because my book agent really disliked this argument. She kept saying, but, you know, what about invading Russia? You know, obviously, you know, Napoleon invaded Russia and was slaughtered and therefore, you know, Hitler made exactly the same mistake. So I talked to a lot of historians and they said, well, first of all, you know, in whatever century it was, I don't remember now, the Swedes invaded Russia very successfully. So that's one point. Secondly, the real reason that Hitler failed were mostly forced errors. It isn't that the Russians put up such a phenomenal and costly fight. It's that Hitler was just, he was overconfident. He imagined himself a great military genius, which he wasn't, and he brought disaster upon himself. The two are not the same story. So you're really, you know, the very big picture here is don't allow yourself to be a reductionist, to have these simple analogies and these simplistic conclusions allow you to influence your decision making and your purview, your mind view, right? That's exactly right. And I think it's, you know, just because two things might look the same does not mean that they are. Think about, because I think history is still very useful, think about the differences between now and then, rather than be attracted to the similarities and the comfort that they bestow. And it's been very fascinating, you know, living in the UK at the moment through this pandemic to have a prime minister who is obsessed with Churchill and sees himself as Churchill and to see how all of the things that were quite useful to Churchill in the Second World War are not at all helpful now. <laughs> you know, these great statements and great rhetoric, you know, they don't work with very, very detailed, difficult, complex science. And the more poor old Boris Johnson keeps trying to fight the Second World War again, the more he misses actually what's going on. I had Eric Larson on, coincidentally, and we were talking about this very same point. And so through his research, what he said was, you know, this was a flawed human being who happened to rise to a moment that we may have never seen again, <laughs> you know, and probably won't was really his assertion. So he made your point that you can't compare them. So Boris aspiring to be Churchillian, I suppose, is typical of any politician, but totally inappropriate is what you're saying. And even Churchill in different circumstances was a terrible leader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's much more important to pay attention to the differences here than to look for a comforting continuity. I want to transition to something that you said that I thought was really something I wanted to probe with you, which is this idea that we should be experimenting. So one way of dealing with ambiguity is to try a whole bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And you also very smartly distinguish it from pilots. You know, it's not a pilot. Pilot seems to me from my previous career was you did a pilot to prove your strategy. Like this is going to work and you set it up in a way that almost assures it. But an experiment, you're open to, hey, if it doesn't work, then we've learned something. But I don't think that many organizations do that. And then you made the interesting point about 3M, which is this colossal reputation of being an experimenter. 
And then there's new CEO comes in and OPEX is the place and <laughs> eliminates all the, the innovation. And then there's stock plummets. So I'm throwing a lot out at you, but I know you'll be able to condense this into something meaningful. Yeah. So I think, you know, experiments are what you do when you don't know what to do. And it's in the nature of complex systems that you may, you know, you can see a problem that needs solving. But because there are so many forces acting upon so many forces, it's very difficult to understand at which point to intervene. And so you think to yourself, okay, so let's try some stuff and see what happens. And one of the most beautiful examples of this, I think, is a story I tell about a Dutch healthcare company that did home care nursing that had this very elaborate, complicated bureaucracy that assigned contracts to patients that determined exact schedules for particular nurses. You know, Monday, Betty's going to go for seven minutes, and Wednesday, John's going to go for six minutes, and Friday, you know, Bill's going to go for eight minutes, and very lugubrious bureaucracy, very, very tightly controlled. And there are several problems. One is it's really expensive. And the other is both the nurses and the patients hate it. So very interesting guy in the Netherlands who started life as an economist then went to work as a nurse said, you know, this is really horrible. Let's try something just to see if it's better. And what he says is, okay, let's automate essentially the allocation of contracts. That's really simple. But forget this scheduling nonsense. Let's have teams of 10 nurses looking after 40 to 50 patients. And let's just tell them to do the right thing. They're qualified nurses. Let's trust their judgment. And the outcome of this tiny experiment is what they found was the patients got better in half the time. And the cost of providing this service fell by a third. Now, there is no way on earth you could sit in front of your laptop looking at all the costs and the cash flow and and labor flow of this system and be able to design the new system. You can only find out where the opportunity lies by trying something. You know, when I interviewed Joss de Bloch, who's the guy who started this, and asked him, you know, what surprised you about this? He said, I had no idea you could make such a vast improvement so easily and so quickly. So you have to do the experiment to find out. And it's quite important to understand, of course, that doesn't mean every experiment's going to deliver such phenomenal results. Mm -hmm. But the act of doing the experiment shows you more of the system than you were able to see before. So, for example, this was a very famous success story in the Netherlands. And so the fire department asked him, could you run the fire service in a similar way? And they did the experiment and discovered actually it needs to be more centralized than is conducive to this way of working. So what that meant is the fire department now understood much more of the dynamic which made them successful and therefore could focus more on the areas of the work that really, really mattered. So I think experiments are really important. It's important that they're low risk, that they're low cost, and that people understand no matter what happens, you're going to find something out. You know, I've worked with people, I've worked with senior leaders who all they want to hear about is what's succeeding. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, and it's why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? And they're not creating a culture. This is why this struck me so much in reading this was like, you're not fostering a learning environment. No. I mean, even the fire department that you just described, they got confirmation. This is who we are. This is how we do it. We now understand this. Let's move on and let's you know make it even better based on that understanding. But if you come in a culture where the leaders are saying, all I want to hear about are your wins, mm -hmm. then you're not really inspiring leaders to say, let's try different things. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Because if it doesn't work, then you get labeled, you manage the loser project. That's right. I mean, I'm sure you see this. Yeah. And it's why I think it is so important to look, you know, in any experiment at what did we learn and what is the broader application of that, both the stuff that was great and the stuff that wasn't terrible. And, you know, coming to 3M, I think one of the things that 3M is so famous for is it seems to be able to turn out revolutionary products in a remarkably short period of time. And when I dug into that, what I discovered is that's not what happens at all. They do experiments 
all the time. But the thing they do that's so smart that most companies balk at is when things don't deliver a new product or a new process, instead of saying, okay, well, that didn't work, let's forget about it. They do phenomenally intelligent and rigorous postmortems and ask this great question, how far is the failure of this due to external circumstances beyond our control? And what would have to change in the market that might make this relevant? And so very often what happens is like lots of creative organizations, they're often way ahead of the market. Something in the market will shift, another technology or a new demand will come along. And because they institutionalize the memory around these experiments, they'll suddenly think that experiment from three years ago, Mm -hmm. that could work now because these other pieces of the puzzle have changed. And so they bring something out, you know, that was useless three years ago and is, you know, with a bit of refinement is exactly what's needed now. And that's where their speed comes from. So you also tell the story about, so 3M brought in a new CEO and they've got this history, which they've thrived on. Mm -hmm. And he decided to OPEX 3M. What was his thinking? And of course, it failed. So you can kind of punctuate that too. Well, of course, he looked and they thought, you're doing all this stuff that never goes anywhere. That's stupid. Let's get rid of that. And let's introduce Six Sigma. You know, so let's be super efficient, really lean, you know, really as quick and easy as we can be. This is in 2000. And, you know, Six Sigma is designed to eliminate defects. It has nothing to do with innovation. And the consequence is, of course, innovation just shriveled up. And as you say, you know, the company's stock price floundered and so on. The next CEO, George Buckley, comes in and reverses all that because, as he quite rightly says, you cannot schedule a bright idea on Wednesday and two on Friday. (laughs) And neither can you walk in today and say, oh, wow, the stock price isn't doing very well. You guys come up with some market-shifting brilliant ideas by the end of the week, please. It doesn't work like that. You need a culture and processes that support experimentation and the kind of observation of what's going on in the world that gives rise to new ideas and new opportunities. Margaret, I want to transition right now and talk a little bit about your experience with the TED Talk. So number one, you described Purdue University research that sought to identify what could make chickens produce more eggs. And they studied an average flock over the course of six generations, six generations of chicken life, and compared their productivity to an equivalently sized group of what you called super chickens. So these were Mm -hmm. identified as high producing egg chickens, right? And they put them all together on one team. So you had the average flock and then you had another team of super chickens. And while the average chickens did just fine in terms of their consistent productivity, Supergroup literally pecked each other to death. So you concluded that collaboration, not internal competition, brings out the best in organizations and that we must build cultures of helpfulness, which is still a very enlightened idea in business today. So can you briefly add some punctuation to, you know, your takeaway from this and what you really want leaders to understand? Yeah, sure. So interestingly, you know, the evolutionary biologist who did the experiment came to the conclusion that the productivity of the few super chickens had been achieved by suppressing the productivity of the rest. And I think this is quite a profound insight. And it's especially relevant in organizations that are inclined to celebrate and really single out their hypos, right, their high performers. And I think probably the best emblem of this in organizational life was the adoption by most Fortune 500 companies of this process of force ranking, Mm -hmm. which you measure everybody and you see who's doing best and you throw all sorts of goodies and development programs and stuff like that their way. And you throw out, on principle, the bottom 5%, and you just leave the rest to do whatever it is they do. Now, you don't have to be a mathematical genius to realize that in this environment, first of all, everybody is living in a threat state. Mm -hmm. 
or threat of falling out. And that, of course, threat states provoke generally very bad dysfunctional behavior in people as they're trying to defend themselves. You don't have to be a mathematical whiz kid to realize that the safest place in this system is the big fat middle. If you could just be really deeply average, you will not get thrown out and neither will you have all this extra pressure to deliver. So instead of actually improving productivity, it actually kind of encourages mediocrity. However, most companies adopted it. GE proselytized it. Mm -hmm. Microsoft too. And Microsoft adopted it. And I think Intel did assessments of people twice a year, which in itself is just such a gigantic amount of time Mm -hmm. and money. And interestingly, years ago, I did some work for GE. And I said, you know, you guys recently stopped doing forest ranking. And I said, yeah, (laughs) sort of tentative. And I said, how come? I thought that was so interesting. I mean, personally, I was thrilled because I thought it was the stupidest idea I'd ever come across. But what changed your mind? And they said, well, actually, somewhere along the line, somebody had the bright idea of crunching the data to see what impact did it have on productivity? And the truth was, it didn't have any. <laughs> well, I've also learned, and I don't know who did the study, so this is anecdotal, but what they were also able to discern was that people who perform badly in one year almost exclusively rebound the next. Yeah. So it's a very small number of people who are really, truly the poor performers. They're going through a divorce or they've got a health issue or the job they're in is no longer inspiring to them and they needed a, you know, sort of a kick in the rear end, whatever. But then next year they would have been fine. So, you know, eliminating these people's jobs was entirely unnecessary. And when you mentioned institutional knowledge earlier about 3M, you're killing off that too. The people that might have remembered the experiment, you just lopped off 5% of these people every year. That's right. But I think what it also speaks to is a tendency of many organizations to sweat the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a system that is designed to weed out slackers. But slackers are like a 5% problem. The 95% problem is how do you get people more energized, more creative, you know, more willing to find opportunities to do great experiments? That's the huge problem. Mm-hmm. Instead, what a great deal of management does is it operates on the principle that everybody comes into work just because they want to do nothing all day. Right. So we managed to the lowest common denominator. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the big challenge for managers these days is forget the 5% problem and start thinking deeply about the 95% problem, which is where do you get the benefits of collaboration? You know, the reason that the healthy flock is so healthy in the Purdue experiment is because these are coherent, functional social groups. And what you find when you study innovation or you work in very creative industries is that the way that great ideas develop is not that one genius has one breakthrough ideal, although that's a rather romantic way we like to tell the story. It's that lots of people have lots of ideas. And if they know and trust each other, they share them. And these ideas go from kind of scrappy, ill-formed ideas gradually to really great ideas worth developing. But none of that happens if people don't trust each other enough to share their thinking. And, you know, there's a fantastic study on the history of Bell Labs and what made Bell Labs the most productive lab in history. And the answer is it's culture of helpfulness, that when people got stuck, they had other people they could turn to whom they trusted and who cared about them and would say, I'm stuck, and other people would help them. You know, sometimes by saying, well, you've worked three nights without sleep, you need to go to bed, or, you know, just chill for a bit, have a beer, relax. Or sometimes actually go talk to John on the third floor. He knows a lot about this problem. He'll help you. And in fact, what they discovered at Bell Labs was a great deal of the Nobel Prize winning work in that lab was down to a couple of people who seemed to have spent most of their lives in the lunchroom 
as sort of super helpers. Mm. So these very collaborative environments where people live and work for a long time, so they establish relationships of trust over time, these do far more to drive innovation and creativity than these deliberately fostered, highly competitive environments where nobody trusts anybody. Fantastic. Margaret, we have a tradition on our podcast where we take a quick break from this great discussion and we move it to what we call the heartbeat round. And so as a means of getting to know you a bit more personally and intimately, I have about a dozen questions that I'd like to ask you. But with these, the goal is to have you answer them instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you ready to go? Yeah. One thing you'd like to see change in the world. Well, I'd like COVID-19 to disappear and never return. But failing that, I would like the measure of a good business to be what it contributes to society. A trait you consider essential to your success. Curiosity. An artist you admire for their adaptability, capacity for reinvention, and confidence in thinking for themselves. Probably somebody who isn't thought of as an artist because he's a clothes designer, but it's the Japanese designer, Issei Miyaka. I think he's a genius, and I think he has reconceptualized clothing, and you know he walked away from the Paris fashion scene, and his clothes will last forever. That's an answer I didn't see coming, so you're even an expert on Japanese fashion. That wows me. One way awareness of your own mortality influences your daily life. Um, constantly. You know, my first husband died when I was 30. It made me realize it's always now or never time. It gives me a great sense of urgency. A book you believe all of us must read. Oh, gosh. I mean, there are very many. One of my current favorites is a book called Learning from the Germans by the American philosopher Susan Nyman about how to deal with our very uncomfortable history. The trait you admire most in other people? Curiosity about other people. Someone or any era with whom you'd love to have dinner? Oh, gosh, there's so many of these people, but I would love to have dinner with Henrik Ibsen, a genius, genius playwright who invented modern theater. You mentioned the wild duck in your book. Yeah. Right. I, I had to write a paper about that in college. So I, I vividly remember Ibsen. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Uh, climate change will continue to be the biggest existential threat we face. Hmm. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. You don't have to get it all done today. A cultural value every organization should have. Uh, Self-criticism. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? The New Yorker. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Uh, playing the piano and learning Italian. Something you think we all need to do at least one time in our life? Learn a foreign language. Your synonym for the word heart? Compassion. And finally, the quality that derails the most leadership careers? Competitiveness. Awesome. Thank you very much. Let's get back to our conversation. All right. Your greedy interviewer has one more question for you. So you've done four TED speeches mm -hmm. and most people have done none. And I think, you know, everyone has seen many of these. And I think that one of the questions that people would have is, what's it like to be on the TED stage? And more specifically, what was your process in constructing a 20-minute presentation that was going to be impactful? I know you did it four times. Yeah. What can you tell us about preparing for a speech of that size and that kind of an audience? Yeah, I guess the process I've tended to adopt, and I can't really remember anymore, but you know, I think the process I've tended to adopt is to think about what's the argument I want to make and what are you know, to my way of thinking, what are the kind of tentpole stories that illustrate that? So I think the talk has to have an arc. You know, you start with a story that presents a challenge of some kind. I mean, this is true of my talks. So lots of great talks that are completely different from this. So you start with a surprising story, and then you unpack that a bit. And then I think you have to kind of do a sort of, Yes, but 
because if it's just, here's my idea, it's great, it's great, it's great, it's great, it's over. I think that's rather bland. So I think you have to challenge your own thinking. And then at some point, I think you have to go from the particular to the general in terms of what it means. I mean, that's how I've done mine. It doesn't mean the next one I do, if I ever do another one, I'll do it that way. But that's, generally speaking, I think what the structure of those talks are. What's it like being on that stage? Well, I think it's pretty scary, and I think it shouldn't be. I mean, I remember once at one TED conference seeing the, I think, Prime Minister of Libya giving a speech, and he had his notes in his hands, and his hands were shaking. And I thought, my God, if this is more frightening than being Prime Minister of Libya. (laughs) Right. But it is for many people, so that's why I'm asking. Yeah, so I feel uncomfortable about that. I think, you know, the TED audience is fantastically supportive and generous. You know, people often fluff and forget what they're saying, and everybody is always incredibly supportive. It's all edited out, but it's a very warm, generous audience. And I think I have a burning desire to share some of these stories and share some of the ideas I have because I'm really excited by them. And I think if that's what you feel personally, I think that tends to come across. I think, and the people at TED would say this too, I think trying to sell something doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. I have never, ever done a speech with props or slides or anything like that. And I don't think you ever will because that distracts me. And I really like being able to focus on the audience. I mean, in all my speaking engagements, I've never, ever used slides or anything because I want to be super tuned into the audience. I want to look at them and see, are they with me? Are they drifting off? Do they really like this? In which case, maybe I'll expand this section of the talk a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're really keen. Or no, they're getting a bit bored. I think I'll move on a bit sooner than I intended to. Well, it's more extemporaneous the way you're describing it, which is, you know, that's an element of confidence. And it gives me more freedom. And for my taste, it makes the whole thing a bit more intimate. But it's interesting, as I've often thought, you know, if I were ever going to do another one, I'd just like it to be very quiet. I feel we're living in an age where people are shouting rather a lot. And I have this vision of doing a TED Talk where I'm sitting in an armchair as though in front of a fire, just having a chat. Mm. I mean, I feel it would be nice to kind of bring the pitch down a bit and have, you know, this is something I really like about your podcast, have something that feels a bit more like a good heart to heart. Oh, you're using my language. That's wonderful. <laughs> Margaret, I could talk to you forever. You are erudite and so knowledgeable and so incisive. And I know my audience is going to love this. So on behalf of them, let me just say thank you so very much for joining me. Best of success with your book. And of course, it's a non-business book, but you'll do better because of that. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you for your wonderful questions and for being so thoughtful in your reading of the book. You know, that's what every every author craves is a thoughtful reader. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, best to you. Happy New Year. And to you too and to all your listeners. Thank you. Take care. Before we head out, I want to once again thank each of you for helping to introduce us to all of the people in your life. As I've mentioned many times before, seeing our audience grow is the only encouragement we need to keep going. And I hope you don't mind my ringing my plug bell. My book, Lead from the Heart, is being taught in nine American universities, and I invite you to take a peek at it. You can easily find it on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. And besides hosting this podcast, I'm also a professional speaker and consultant who would love to help you in your organization, whether to speak at a virtual event or help you evolve your culture and leadership practices. And you can reach me at my new website, markccrowley.com. As always, I want to thank the people who support me and this podcast, and they include Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yont, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. As always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.